So let's see, we are up to page 141, the elements of piety continuing. And it said on the third, um, fourth paragraph, the idea that we're talking about is the idea that the true shepherds of Israel are the ones who are willing to sacrifice anything to take care of every single Jew. And if we are willing to do that for others, then Hashem responds to that with uh, in kind. Same way that a same way that a father loves no one more than the person who has shown genuine love towards the father's sons. Now, what page this, are you on? What page? One forty-one. Okay. The bottom bottom paragraph. This is the idea underlying what they said about the high priest. So here's the law about the high priest. It's an interesting law. The, the Torah tells us about the idea of an accidental killer. So someone who kills someone else accidentally. It was not very negligent. He was very negligent. He would not have the same protection. And it's not completely accidental, right? So the, the Gemara gets into exactly what level of the right, perfect balance of somewhat negligent, but not too negligent. And the Torah tells us in, under those circumstances, the accidental killer will go to a city of refuge. It's called the Ari Mikla, right? The city of refuge. So now the Torah tells us that, the Talmud tells us that the, when the high priest of that generation dies, then the Ari Mikla, they're sentencing to having to go to the city of refuge. And if they leave the city of refuge, they, will, they can be killed by the closest relative of the person who they killed. That sentence is over. The Gemara tells, tells us why is this so. For they should have pleaded for mercy on behalf of their generation, but failed to do so. So this Talmudic passage is taking it for granted that if an individual kills another individual by accident, that is, not, that is not completely an accident. Sorry, that's not the right way to say it. There is a level of involvement of God with that decree. That if people did not deserve, if the individual who dies did not deserve to die, then Hashem wouldn't have had the other individual, the accidental killer, kill him. The Talmud tells us a story where you have one person who kills someone without any witnesses. Right? So he has no one to be able to, to punish him. What Hashem orchestrates is that that individual will be walking underneath a ladder when another individual is going up that ladder and a rung is going to fall on that ladder and it's going to end up killing the individual walking underneath it. So what the, the Talmud is telling us is that people don't die in these types of you know, accidental deaths where someone is swinging a hammer or an axe and it goes swinging off and, and kills someone unless this is part of Hashem's plan. Now, the reason why these individuals deserve to die is because the high priest was not praying to avert that decree. So to some extent, he bears some responsibility for this occurring. There's a story it just made me think of right now uh, in terms of people not dying by accident. About, um, I think about maybe eight or 10 years ago, there was a story with uh, an individual who was living in, um, in, I think it was Brooklyn, but it might've been Lakewood, New Jersey. And he was driving a car, a very safe driver, and he's driving a car, and he was going across an intersection, and he, there was an, a, a couple, an old, old man, old lady, walking across that intersection, and he pushes on the brakes, he pumps the brakes, his brakes just fail, and he ends up killing the, the couple. Both of them die on the spot, you know, or, or almost on the spot. And... Um, the cops exonerated him. They said there was no reason. You know, you did everything right. You know, they did an investigation. He did nothing wrong. He was not a reckless driver. You know, the, the brakes just happened to fail right then. But he was feeling terribly guilty about this. 
So he went to Israel and he went to Rav Chaim Kanievsky, who's you know, probably the, the biggest Torah scholar alive today in Israel. And he told, they told Rav Chaim Kanievsky this whole story about this individual who kills these two people and he's feeling terribly guilty and he can't, he can't move on with life. So uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky says, Amalek. That's the only thing that he says is Amalek. Right? Amalek means that these, uh, that the people, presumably means that the people who died were from Amalek. Right? And, the, and the law is that Amalek gets, um, the law is that the people who are the descendants of Amalek should be killed. So the fellow is like, Amalek? It was just a nice old man and old lady. What, what, what are you talking about? Chaim Kanievsky said Amalek. And that was it. So a little bit later, this guy decided that maybe he should move houses because the Gemara tells us, Mishana Makam, Mishana Mazel. If you change the place where you live, you change your, your fortune. And he, he couldn't get past this thing that he killed this individual, these two innocent people, even though he didn't do it on purpose. So he goes to the real estate agent, he's checking out houses, and the real estate agent brings him into a house and tells him that, uh, you know, this house, it's a funny story. The house was, a, it was an old couple, and uh, they both died. They were crossing the street, and someone's brakes failed, and they died while crossing the street because the person's brakes failed, and, and he ran them over. So he's like, uh, I have to leave this house. I can't look around this house. And the real estate agent's like, why? Like, I, I, I just can't. This is not for me. Real estate agent said, you know, you, you took your time. You made an appointment with me. You took up my time. At least walk around the house. So he says, okay, I'll walk around the house quickly just to, uh, you know, just to fulfill the obligation of checking out this house. So they're walking around the house. The real estate agent opens up a room, opening up this room, that room, this room. And then they go into the basement. He opens up a room. And it turns out that there's a bunch of pictures on the wall of the old man, but when he wasn't an old man, when he was a young man, and he was working for the SS, and he was in concentration camps as a, as a, as a guard in a concentration camp. And then all of a sudden, things started clicking. He had been feeling guilty about this, like why did it have to happen through him? Why did he have to be the first to kill this innocent old man and old lady? Well, in truth, as Rukhaim Kanievsky said, these people were Amalek as we see them today. They, they were Nazis, and they, they had killed many, many Jews in World War II, and this was something that was meant to be. But that's a story of how we see that sometimes things happen. When people die, it seems to be you know, a, a horrible accident. Oftentimes, there's, there's a, a plan behind that, exactly why that's happened. Similarly, they stated, there was a person who was devoured by a lion at a distance of three parsaot from Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi is in Amora. And as a result of this event, Elio, Elijah the prophet, did not appear to Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi for three days. Why didn't he appear to him? What did Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi do wrong? But Elijah the prophet felt that he was somewhat responsible for the fact that this individual dies at a very close distance to him. Now, how could he be responsible? Is he in charge of making sure that there's no lions in the vicinity? No. But the idea is, once again, this idea that incidences like these do not occur unless they happen because Hashem is trying to send the message either to individuals or to the nation. If the righteous people of that generation are able to stop this from happening and they don't, they're complicit. Now, the only way we could say that they're able to stop it from happening is if we ascribe to them the power to pray, the power to incite, to urge us on, to repent, that would help stop these kind of incidents from happening. We have thus far defined the primary components of piety. Their specifics are in the domain of every thoughtful individual and every person whose heart is pure to be implemented in a just manner in accordance with the principles of piety, everything in its proper time. And so this is the longest chapter that we have done so far. 
And what I was discussing is all of the different elements of piety. But now in terms of on a daily basis, it's not something that he can define for you, depending on what level you're on, depending on what challenges you face in, 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 within your life, and depending on what challenges you have successfully um, scaled. The, 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 uh, the bar is going to be very different depending on the individual. Let's, go, let's just start the next chapter, chapter 20, Assessing Piety. What needs to be explained at this point is how to assess the nature of this kind of piety. This is a matter of the highest importance. You should be aware that in actuality, this is the most difficult aspect of piety because of the subtleties involved. Right? So remember, when you're trying to figure out exactly what it means to be pious, there's a, it's a, it's a tightrope game of figuring out, well, is this the level of acting above and beyond that is called for? Or is this a level of acting above and beyond that is not called for, right? The evil inclination readily finds an opening into this domain. Therefore, one finds himself on very dangerous ground here. For there are many good things that the evil inclination may reject as if they were harmful, and many sins that it may turn into important mitzvot. Now, how does the evil inclination do this? How does it manage to fool us so well? So the answer is, as most of the tricks of the evil inclination are, it lies in the idea of self-interest. It lies in the idea of the practices that we are engaged in. We, we justify them to ourselves. We rationalize them to ourselves. So if we're engaged in a specific practice or a specific practice seems like the kind of practice that we would enjoy doing, we will find the justification to explain how that is really the righteous act to do. And that's true both on a, a lower level and it's also true even when you're dealing with the, uh, the pious level, we're still subject to the, the dictates of the evil inclination, whose goal is always to muddy the waters and to make things confusing. And through making things confusing, to take us down the wrong path and tell us this would be a very pious thing. To go tell someone off for their behavior, that's a very pious thing. You're giving them rebuke. But in truth, it's coming from a very self-righteous place. It's not going to change anything, and it's just going to create enmity between the two individuals. That's not a pious behavior. That is a, a very, a, a not nice thing to do at all. Given the other individual, you have a different individual who actually has the ability to rebuke and it will work, right? But that individual, he's shy, so he doesn't want to do it, right? That's the evil inclination convincing him not to do it. What, how does he convince him not to do it? If you rebuke him, you know what's going to happen? He's not going to listen. It's going to create enmity. But he's not looking at it clearly because he's, using his own self-interest of not being that interested in actually giving the rebuke to convince himself why it would be a bad outcome. So it's an incredibly subtle question of what sort of behavior is going to be considered pious and lead to a mitzvah, what sort of behavior will not be pious and on the contrary could actually be considered a sin. Okay.